You are listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. This talk was given at 2007 Frankfurt Avenue. For more information, visit us at circleofhope.net. Hi, I'm Johnny. I use he, him pronouns. need a volunteer to read the prologue of the Gospel of John. John 1. 1 through 14. Anyone want to do that? Megan, will you do it? Thank you, Megan. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify to the light so that all might believe through him. He himself was not the light, but he came to testify to the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world came into being through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to what was his own and his own people did not accept him. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God, who were born not of blood or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. Thank you, Megan. Let's pray before we keep going. Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable to you, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. I think it's hard for Americans to be Christians. The United States is a military superpower. It's one of the wealthiest countries in the world. It has a lot of diplomatic power too, and it's easy to argue that it's the so it's easy to argue that it's the most powerful country in the world, has the biggest economy, biggest military, most diplomatic capital, and I think that makes following Jesus and doing the gospel hard because Jesus brings a sort of anti-worldly power message, turns the whole world upside down. God becomes human, dies, resurrects, and the ultimate power of humans against humans is eliminated in death. God becomes human to leave earth as the sole power to be worshipped and followed and obeyed. Even death obeys God. The whole story of the Bible is about the supremacy of God over the world and importantly, more importantly, over evil. And the Christian's job is to worship God and submit to God as a ruler above rulers whether that means ourselves, our government, our economy, our race, our bodies, our gender, whatever rules us, we submit to God and allow God to rule over us. I think it's hard for Americans to do this because we are either too tied to the nation's power itself or we conflate the nation's power with God. Maybe we're repulsed at the uh, pursuit of American power and we want to deteriorate power, period, So it's hard to worship a powerful God and follow a God who intends to reign supreme. So it might be hard to worship for Americans. Oops. Because we worship other gods or we think worship assigns too much power. 
I fall into the second group myself. But I can, the reason I try to worship God is because I know that God's power and authority and reign is, over the world is different than the way the worldly powers try to collect power and authority. It's because of that upside-down message. It's because instead of God reigning over us, God is with us. God is among us. That's what Christmas is about. God is here, reigning for us and for the world. God isn't just benevolent. God's ends aren't just benevolent. God's means are benevolent. God becomes human in order to show us that God loves us. But God isn't weak and is worthy to be worshipped. We not only worship God, we relate to God. And thus, we're related to God. God is with us now, and we express God to the world. We have a responsibility, maybe even an honor, and something to boast in as a result. We then actually derive our pride, our sense of self, from the one to whom we are related. That actually means we have to have a sense of self, though, a sense of pride something to boast in. It's hard to do that in our time and place because we so often see toxic results of arrogance and overconfidence and pride. We might think we need to deny ourselves to be Christians, but we deny ourselves in order to boast in Jesus, not just not to diminish ourselves. I want to resist this false humility that I think people sometimes were conscious of their privilege, the privilege they collect from their gender, or their sexuality, or their race, their nationality exhibit. It's hard to worship God if we think God is just mimicking the powers of the world. It's hard to be proud of how we relate to God if we think that the community that helps facilitate that relationship or the church is succumbing to the power of the world. And to be, more, to be honest with you, um, sometimes and more often than sometimes, it fails in that regard. But we don't have to, and you don't have to. I hope we can then feel empowered because God is with us, and we are vessels that reveal God to the world. We aren't exclusive or elected special people. We aren't the only ones. It's not like we can't learn from others. But we have something to offer that God gave us. You have something to offer that God gave you. And living into that may help us relate to God. We're anointed in our own right. God is with us, and that means something. That's true for all of us. And I want to keep saying that because I want us to believe it. It can be hard to internalize your own sense of value, especially when you've been devalued and oppressed or if you think that having a sense of value or sense of self is wrong, if you believe that self-deprecation is humility. I want to keep sharing this with you because I want you to have a sense of honor because of your relatedness to God. Because too often we depict this mighty and powerful God as one that pours down judgment and wrath upon us. But the Gospels tell us a different story. One that starts with Jesus it's a Christmas story. 
God came to us to be like us, to be with us, to love us, so that we might share an everlasting love and light with a world full of hatred and darkness. That's the story of Christmas. God came to us to be like us, to be with us, to love us, so that we might share that everlasting love and light to a world full of hatred and darkness. God is changing the world. The writer of John begins this story the biography of Jesus that he's writing with this amazing prologue. It's one that both retells the story of creation. So this is another account of creation. And the story of the incarnation, Jesus becoming human. So this is a Christmas story. And it's also a creation story. The writer is showcasing the power and the might and authority of God and how special it is that God became one with us. And the prologue sets up the entire gospel, and one of its goals is to show us the divine presence and power of Jesus. The word Jesus has been here since the beginning, alongside of God, with God, beside God, present to God, and it moves us to consider the humanity of God while also expressing the magnitude of God. God is human, but God is mighty. And this sort of formula would later be used in doctrine. We were just talking about this as we were lighting the candles, human and divine nature of Jesus. This formula here would later be used to, into doctrine. And I think I expressed some of that doctrine just casually earlier during the, uh, uh, an ecumenical council in Nicaea, where we get the Nicene Creed from, where Jesus and his divine and human nature are more fully explained. And this formula that the church fathers came up with for the divinity and the humanity of Jesus informed this translation. It helps us to even translate this passage. But when we first read this, the actual text was much more mysterious. So maybe you read it now with less wonder because we've explained it in our tradition and in our doctrine, and that's a good thing. But at the time, we might have been confused about who this God-man was. This powerful passage is influential in shaping our conception of God, and the clarity of the later councils appropriately inform how we read this. So it's good that we understand this according to the years of tradition and interpretation and understanding that precede us, even if they come after when it was written. The writer is telling us that Jesus is divine, a God, but more than that, that Jesus is God. That Jesus was there since the beginning and was a co-laborer in all of creation, directly having agency in everything that was made. The word is the source of light and life, penetrating darkness and death, and not being overcome by any evil or darkness. John is using Greek and Jewish ideas in, this, in his opening verses to appeal to his context. And the textual confusion that we sometimes have here is rooted in bringing this timeless truth of God's humanity and God's divinity to a societal context. And the clarity that many Christians read this section of the text with is due 
not to the writer himself, but to the application of the commentary and the doctrine to this text that date well past its composition date. John is writing in a way that speaks to his time, and he continues to do so when he introduces John the Baptist in the second paragraph here of the passage. John, the writer of the gospel, is writing a criticism against John the Baptist's offshoot of disciples, setting Jesus and John apart. Two people with disciples, and the writer John is elevating Jesus above John the Baptist. Jesus is superior, the word of God. John is merely sent by God. Jesus, John testifies to the light. Jesus is the light. As Augustine put it, John is truthful, but Jesus is truth. John is the lamp. Jesus is the light. So once again, John, John, the writer of the Gospel of John, is writing to declare Jesus as the word and the final authority, the co-laborer in creation of the world and of light. And John is merely making a way for him. Here, John's debasement is exalted and his humility is lifted up. The world that Jesus created and the home to which Jesus belonged rejects Jesus and doesn't know him. His own people, Israel, don't know him. But the writer continues, everyone that did know him and did accept him became his children. Something new is happening. Jesus disrupts the power structures that we live in. Yes, racial hierarchy, social hierarchy, gendered hierarchy, but Jesus disrupts even our family our nuclear family, our sense of who we are. He disrupts Israel. But those that follow him become a part of a new family. These people, that's us too, become children of God because God is with them and God received them. That's the new family. The creator of the cosmos, the whole world, and the bearer of light received them. It's not because of their blood or their flesh or their heritage or their own earnest effort, but because of God. And after all this exaltation, of Jesus comes the turn. Here's the kicker. The first 13 verses, sorry to use this metaphor, are the shot. You with me? Verse 14, chaser. Okay? This is it. And the word became flesh and lived among us. NIV says the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. From the message, the late Eugene Peterson, who is occasionally useful, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. We're neighborhood people, so we like that. Moved into the hood, onto the block, you know. David Bentley Hart, who is also sometimes useful, the Logos became flesh and pitched a tent among us. Pitched a tent. Why is that? Why is he saying pitched a tent? Because the, ver- the, the Greek verb means tabernacle. It tabernacled among us. The word of God and all of his dwelling and glory and his authority and might moved into the neighborhood, made his dwelling place among us, pitched a tent among us. 
he tabernacled among us. Because God was in the tabernacle and in the Old Testament as they were going through the, to the promised land and God dwelled with them that way. God comes here to deliver us again. He became God with us. The locus of, Jesus, of God's activity is in the person of Jesus himself. And when Jesus pitched his tent among us, the body becomes the locus of God's activity. You become where God is active. What follows this is even greater. And we all see him in his one-of-a-kind glory, like that of the Father. Or like Eugene tells us, like Father, like Son, generous inside and out. True from start to finish. We saw it with our own eyes. We saw our glory with our own eyes. We related to the glory. We were born as children from it. Are you getting the magnitude of God and then God's personal presence in our lives? That's the story of Christmas. These things are happening. Heaven and earth are connecting. God's divine and human nature are in full glory. And then the angels burst out to sing. God has arrived. And you are a child of this glorified one. So, my friends, we boast in the wonder and in that glory that God made God's dwelling among us, that Jesus came to us to know us, to share with us, to bear us as his children, as heirs to the promise of God, as one who would reject any worldly allegiance and assign ourselves to be bonded with him. It's a new something, it's an old something, here from the beginning and with us till the end. That's what Christmas is about. Boast in the fact that God is with us, and then let's be a church and a people who isn't ashamed of the power of God with us, and who can use God's power against forces of evil, that we can help vanquish the powers of hell and clear the darkness. God is related to us, and we can share in that together. It's not an abstraction, it's a lived reality. We can be a part of a body that allows the word to dwell here, to make a home among us, to abide in us, to make God's abode among us. God can be tabernacled right here and is. God can pitch God's tent among us. We're in the room where it happens. We can live in that very, we can be that very tent, that abode, that locus of activity. And we can demonstrate it in word and in deed. We can say it with our mouth and we can do it with our bodies. We're forming a community that expresses that the intimacy we hold together, the closeness that we share, the truth and love that we offer one another is an example of our tentedness. We show that God dwells among us by how we relate and by those who we're related to and the peace and the justice and the compassion that we offer our friends and our, and our neighbors is further evidence of this incarnation too. When we do anti-racist work as a church together, we are pitching God's tent among us. God is dwelling here. We don't boast because we were born one way or another or because we say the right things, but because God is making God's dwelling among us. And when we create an environment where different kinds of people are included and we're considering who is low and who is high and allowing God to make us all on an equal playing field, 
we then allow, when we worship God as Lord, we're making a, a, a political statement that realigns how the world works. It's hard to be a Christian because it's hard for us to be proud of Jesus, maybe not because of our shame, but because of the perversion and boasting in our world. We can easily pledge allegiance to other powers. We can say we're pledging allegiance to Jesus, but really think we're just pledging allegiance to a flag or to a skin color. Seeing the perversion, we can push away God in general. We can push away power in general. And those who push away power but are not conscious of their own use their power over others. We can see, hear, the great and magnificent power of God, but also that God is with us and God is among us, and that means something. Can we hold on to that truth today? Can we receive the blessing? Can you receive the blessing that you're a child of God? That God and all of God's magnitude and glory and power still chose to relate to us, to love us, to name us as children. There's no judgment. There's no condemnation. There's no need to be ashamed. If you feel ashamed, if you feel insecure, that self-deprecation you hold, that was given to you by other people, by other powers, not by God. It's not holy. It's not of God. And I have to tell that to myself all the time. It's easy to preach it. It's hard to believe it. When you stand up for yourself, when you claim your own dignity, you're doing that because God gave you that dignity. Hold on to it, even when they tell you to stop. You're a child of God. You're the beloved of God. Receive that truth today, and don't do it alone. We do it together. We encourage one another. We edify one another. We exhort one another. We love each other so that we know that God loves us, so that you know that God loves us. It's hard to receive that. But if we do, it will be much easier not to be ashamed about it. So let's pray, and then we'll do talk back if you have anything you want to share. Shall we? Lord, be with us and help us to claim our dignity because you have found favor with us. May we continue to express your tentedness, your tabernacledness among us. as we claim our dignity and make our space in the world. Continue to be with us as we do our anti-racist work as a church into the next year, as we fight homophobia in the next year, to continue to make a presence, a place for you to dwell. Amen. Thanks for listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. If you want to talk about it or get connected to a cell, you can find one under our Connect drop-down at circleofhope.net.